0: Hello, my name's Emily Clark. I head up the tax team at Travers Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the fourth episode in our Travelling Seamlessly Global Mobility podcast series. In this series, members of the Travers Smith Global Mobility team will talk to you about the implications of moving your people and operations into and out of different countries, and also discuss situations where members of your team may need to work in more than one country. In this episode, Hannah Manning and Tom Margeson will be talking about when an employee working remotely from abroad can create a taxable presence for their employer. This is such a hot topic. The COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated the trend towards remote working with increasing numbers of employees requesting the right to work from home for some or all of their working week. An ability to offer that flexible working arrangement is seen as a key commercial differentiator for many employers in today's highly competitive labour market. But for those employers with a global workforce, requests from employees to work remotely from overseas can create particular tax challenges. And one such challenge is whether the employee's presence in that overseas jurisdiction can create a taxable presence of the employer, sometimes referred to as a permanent establishment. Hannah and Tom will explain the circumstances in which the employee working overseas could create a taxable presence and will give you some practical guidelines on how to assess the risk for your business. To find out more about the issues discussed in this podcast, the Travis Smith Global Mobility team and how we can help with your global mobility projects, you can visit our website, www.traversmith.com and search for global mobility. And now over to Hannah and Tom.
1: everyone and thanks for joining us for the fourth Travelling Seamlessly podcast. I'm Hannah Manning, a tax partner at Travers Smith.
2: And I'm Tom Mudgson, one of the associates in the tax team. Today, Hannah and I are planning to discuss when an employee working remotely for a UK business from abroad might create a taxable presence for their employer overseas. Hannah, before we kick off, could you give us a typical example to work from?
1: Okay, so let's say that a UK-based pharmaceuticals company is looking to hire a new research and development executive. The company identifies a suitably qualified candidate, but they currently live and work outside the UK. So the candidate requests to work remotely from their home jurisdiction three days a week, travelling to the UK for the remainder of the week. The employer company is tax resident in the UK, and it has no other presence or operations in the new employee's home jurisdiction. So the question for our purposes is whether the activities of the employee working from home could create a taxable presence for the employer company in the employee's home jurisdiction. Tom, before we get into the detailed tax rules in this area, could you outline why an employer might be worried about creating a taxable presence?
2: Yeah, sure. So I think there are likely to be two key concerns for an employer. First is the existence of a taxable presence in the employer's home jurisdiction would likely give rise to a tax filing obligation in that jurisdiction for the employer. For example, they might need to register with local tax authorities and need to make that filing is likely to be administratively burdensome for the employer. I think the second reason is that the existence of a taxable presence could mean that a portion of the trading profits of the employer company, essentially the portion attributable to the activities of the employee, could be subject to tax in the employee's home jurisdiction and depending on whether the employer company is profit making and the applicable local tax rates, this could increase the employer's effective tax rate. It would also create a further administrative burden for the employer in having to calculate the profit attributable to the taxable presence and then in paying over the correct amount of tax. I think it's also worth noting, though, that the creation of a taxable presence isn't inherently a bad thing for employers, particularly where the employer is looking to move into the local market in future and start genuine business activity. What can be more problematic though is the situation where the employer would not have any particular connection with the jurisdiction but for having an employee working remotely there and where the risk of creating a taxable presence overseas is essentially a side effect of other policies, for example a wish to give employees more flexibility in working outside the office. In either scenario the most important thing for employers probably having a degree of certainty over the status of their employees. They'll want to know with confidence that either the employees activities fall below the threshold for a taxable presence or that they pass over that threshold but appropriate measures have been put in place to structure the arrangements efficiently and comply with any local tax filing and payment obligations. Hannah, could you outline for our listeners the circumstances in which non-resident companies will be treated as having a taxable presence in an overseas jurisdiction?
1: Yes, sure. So under international tax principles, a company that's resident in one jurisdiction will generally only have a taxable presence in another jurisdiction if it's trading in that other jurisdiction through a permanent establishment or PE for short. A non-resident company will generally be treated as having a permanent establishment in a jurisdiction in two main circumstances. So circumstance one, where a PE could exist, is where the non-resident company has a fixed place of business in the jurisdiction through which its business is wholly or partly carried on. And that's referred to as a fixed place of business PE. And in essence, what it's looking to is whether there's a physical trading presence in that jurisdiction. The second circumstance in which a P.E. could be created is where an agent of the company has and habitually exercises in that jurisdiction authority to do business on behalf of the non-resident company. And that's referred to as a dependent agent P.E. And that essentially is looking to whether that dependent agent, that person is regularly signing contracts on behalf of the non-resident company. There's an exception, I should say, to that definition of P.E. for an independent agent, which we'll come to and discuss in further detail later. There's also a general exemption from both P.E. definitions for activity that's auxiliary or preparatory in character.
2: Anna, just, just to stop you there, you mentioned that this is the position under international tax principles. What do you mean by that?
1: So that's that's a good point to flag to our listeners. Um, the starting point when considering whether a company might have a taxable presence in a jurisdiction is to consider the specific tax rules under that jurisdiction's domestic tax code. Each jurisdiction will usually have its own bespoke rules. So for example, the UK has a special set of domestic tax rules that set out when a non-resident company could be liable for UK corporation tax. However, In most cases, the domestic rules in a jurisdiction aren't the end of the story, because that jurisdiction may have entered into a bilateral double tax treaty with the jurisdiction in which the company is tax resident. And importantly, if a double tax treaty has been entered into, it generally overrides domestic law. The Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, that's the OECD for short, has created a model tax treaty that forms the basis of the vast majority of the tax treaties entered into by OECD member states, including the UK. And importantly, the OECD model treaty includes a permanent establishment threshold along the lines that I've just outlined, which means that where two jurisdictions have entered into a double tax treaty on OECD terms, a non-resident company should generally only be liable for tax in a jurisdiction where the company is trading through a permanent establishment, regardless of its domestic law position. My reference to the position under international tax principles is therefore a reference to the position under the OECD model tax treaty, and we've assumed for the purposes of our discussion that the relevant employee and employer are resident in jurisdictions that have entered into a double tax treaty on model OECD terms whilst the position under international tax principles is likely to give a reasonable steer on the existence of a foreign permanent establishment, in practice, employers should always seek specialist advice in the jurisdiction concerned. This is because there may be local differences in interpretation of the OECD model treaty and the accompanying guidance, and because even if there's no permanent establishment on OECD principles, a lower threshold might apply for the purposes of tax registration or filing requirements. So Tom, coming back to our definition of a permanent establishment, could you talk us through when an employee working remotely from home could create a fixed place of business PE?
2: So as we discussed earlier, a fixed place of business PE is in essence concerned with whether a non-resident company has a physical trading presence in the jurisdiction. In the case of an employee working remotely from home, this usually boils down to whether the employee's home office constitutes a fixed permanent establishment of the employer company and in order to have a fixed permanent establishment there are three conditions that need to be met. Firstly there must be a place of business and that's normally in the form of a premises or site. Second the place of business must be fixed and third the business of the enterprise must be carried on through this fixed place of business.
1: Okay thanks so shall we take a look at each of those conditions in turn? When might a home office constitute a place of business?
2: A place of business means a location which is at the disposal of a non-resident company, sometimes referred to as the disposal test. No formal legal right to use a place is required, but there must be more than merely incidental or intermittent presence. And whether an employee's home office is at the disposal of a non-resident employer will depend on a range of factors and all the facts and circumstances will be relevant. OECD guidance on the Model Treaty confirms that a key factor in the inquiry is likely to be whether the employer has required the employee to work from home Evidence an employee being required to work from home would include an employer not providing an office to the employee for use in circumstances where the nature of the employee's employment clearly relies on an office. So in our example of a newly hired R&D executive, were the employer not to provide the employee with an office in the UK to work from when they return to London, that is likely to be strong evidence of a requirement to work from home and therefore that the employee's home office is at the disposal of the UK employer. Whilst this requirement test is important when considering whether or not an employee's home office is at the disposal of their employer, other factors will also be relevant to the inquiry. And these factors generally look to whether the employer has the effective power to use the home office and the extent of presence of the employer at the employee's home. Examples of these factors might include some of the following. So whether a business meetings with third parties or other employees are held at the Home Office, here we mean actual physical work meetings, whether the Home Office address is provided to third parties to enable them to correspond with the employer, whether a proportion of the expenses of the Home Office are paid by the employer, whether the employer is paid an additional allowance for travel and accommodation near the head office, whether the employer stipulates what facilities the Home Office requires, whether there are any features which identify the employer at the individual's home, for example, nameplates on the building, or finally, if representatives of the employer can turn up at the employee's home unannounced and expect access or for the employee to be present. Hannah, did you have any other observations on this test?
1: I think that's a really good summary. There are three points that I I would perhaps add here first of all the disposal test has a clear emphasis on the power to use a particular location and i think that in considering this it is necessary also to take into account how material the use of the location is to the overall business and the importance of the activities carried on there And that's apparent in the principles that you touched on, that the use of uh, that location must be more than merely incidental. So where an employee is particularly senior, for example, a very senior executive, it might be more difficult to conclude that a home office isn't at the employer's disposal. Uh, Secondly, the OECD commentary suggests that there's a temporal element to the test of whether a location is a place of business, that is, whether the use of that particular location is continuous or whether it's intermittent. And I think in that respect, there's some crossover with the second limb of the test, which we'll come back to, but continuity or permanence of use will clearly be important, although not necessarily decisive. And third, whether the disposal test is met in relation to a home office is is likely to be highly fact specific in practice and there is no bright line test for this. It will therefore be important to carry out a detailed review of the facts based on all the factors that we've discussed and remember that small differences in the fact pattern could have a material bearing on the outcome of the analysis.
2: Mm. I, I, I agree with all of that. Hannah, could you could you talk us through the second limb of the fixed place of business P.E.? That is the the requirement that the place of business must be fixed.
1: Yes. So for a place of business to be fixed, as you would expect, it must be established at a distinct geographic place and it must also have a certain degree of permanence. So in the case of a home office, the geographic limit of this test is likely to be met because the employee's home will be at a fixed location. In considering whether the home office has a sufficient degree of permanence, the OECD guidance generally uses a six month yardstick. So where the business has been maintained for a period longer than six months, that will be considered to be sufficiently permanent. However, that approach is modified where the activities are recurrent in nature so that in those cases, each period of time is considered in combination. So if we come back to our example of the R&D executive working from home, even though they might only work from home three out of five days a week, each three day period would have to be considered in combination. Um, And as a result, Taking that alongside the indefinite nature of the arrangement, it's likely to mean that the six-month yardstick is is satisfied.
2: Mm. And, and I suppose it's perhaps worth pausing here to note that this permanent test was an important reason why temporary working arrangements during the COVID-19 pandemic were unlikely to give rise to permanent establishment issues for businesses. In the majority of cases, home working arrangements were a temporary arrangement implemented in response to the COVID-19 pandemic and therefore lacked the degree of permanence and continuity to constitute a fixed place of business. Equally though, where those COVID-19 working patterns have persisted post-COVID, it's likely that the arrangements may have acquired the requisite degree of permanence and there is a risk that it may have tipped into a taxable presence.
1: Yes, that's absolutely right. So, Tom, could you talk us through the final condition, that is whether the business of the employer is carried on through the permanent establishment?
2: Sure. The The business of the employer will normally be carried on through the place of business by personnel of the non-resident employer working at the fixed premises. In the case of employees working at the place of business, this test will almost invariably be met for these purposes, it will it will not matter how the employee is engaged contractually, so self-employed and consultants will also meet this test, provided they are carrying on business on behalf of the non-resident employer. So bringing together the strands we've discussed, there are three conditions for a fixed place of business P.E. One, a location at the disposal of the non-resident company two, that location is fixed and three, the business of the non-resident is carried on through that place of business. In the case of employees working remotely from home, I think in practice the second and third conditions are very likely to be met and so the key question will therefore be whether the home office is at the disposal of the employer and the factors set out earlier in particular whether the employee is required to work from home will be important in assessing whether the home office is at the employee's disposal. Hannah we we started by outlining two ways in which a non-resident company could have a PE. We've discussed the first being the fixed place of business PE, can you tell our listeners about the dependent agent PE?
1: Yes So, as outlined earlier, the dependent agent PE is concerned with situations where a person regularly concludes contracts on behalf of a non-resident company. And in order for a person to constitute a dependent agent PE, three conditions have to be met. So, first of all, the person must act on behalf of the non-resident company as an agent. And the OECD guidance here expressly states that this condition will be met for employees because they'll necessarily act as agent for the employer in the course of their duties. Second, the agent has to have the authority to conclude contracts in the name of the non-resident company. And thirdly, the agent has to habitually exercise their authority to conclude those contracts.
2: Okay, so in the case of employees working remotely from abroad, the first condition will necessarily be met because the agent will be an employee. Shall we take a closer look at the second and third conditions? Hannah, can you walk us through the requirement to conclude contracts?
1: Sure. There are really two points to note about this condition. First, is that the conclusion of contracts covers situations in which the agent has the authority to actually conclude contracts under the law that governs the relevant contract but also situations where that agent plays a principal role leading to the conclusion of contracts that are ultimately concluded without material modification by someone else. And that latter situation is intended to cover situations where a contract is effectively rubber stamped offshore, but is materially negotiated by the agent in their home jurisdiction. The second point to note is that the authority to conclude contracts must cover contracts relating to the business proper and in practice what that means is that most contracts will be relevant for these purposes but employment contracts or similar contracts that are relating to internal operations are generally excluded when considering whether there's a dependent agent pe what's slightly less clear however is whether external contracts with parties other than the employer's ultimate customers, will similarly be excluded and not taken into account for the purposes of this test. So, Tom, what about the last condition that the conclusion of contracts is habitual? What does that mean?
2: There's no precise definition of habitual for these purposes. The extent and frequency of the activity necessary to say that an agent is habitually exercising contracting authority will depend on the nature of the contract and the business of the non-resident company. So, for example, the conclusion of a single critical customer contract could be enough to constitute habitual activity in certain circumstances. It will therefore be necessary to understand the importance of the contracting authority and the frequency with which it's exercised.
1: Yes, that's a really interesting point. So, bringing this discussion together, what does all of this mean for the home working arrangement?
2: Well, I think the key practical takeaway is that employers should closely interrogate the authority or powers that an employee working remotely will be given for concluding and negotiating contracts on behalf of a non-resident company and the nature of the contracts which they might be involved in entering into. As with the fixed place of business PE, the position is likely to be highly fact specific and where employees are entering into business critical customer contracts, that is likely to result in the creation of a dependent agent PE. However, in many cases, an employee's activity might fall below the threshold for the formal conclusion or execution of contracts, making a close analysis of of the facts and the individual's role in negotiations particularly important. I think the other point to note is that unlike the fixed place of business PE, In practice, it may be possible to put in place governance arrangements to mitigate the risk that employees working overseas are treated as habitually concluding contracts. For example, by ensuring that contracts entered into by the employer are negotiated and concluded by personnel in the employer's jurisdiction of residence. And in certain circumstances and subject to the facts, this might be sufficient to reach the conclusion that a particular employee does not create a dependent agent PE. It's also worth noting that there is a specific exclusion from the the definition of a dependent agent PE for agents of independent status. This is intended to cover an agent who is independent of the non-resident company, both legally and economically, and who acts in the ordinary course of his business. This exclusion would not be available in the case of employees, but it may be helpful in situations where a non-resident company engages an independent contractor or a genuine third-party professional. So, Hannah, before we conclude, was there anything else that you wanted to add to what we've said so far?
1: The, The only point I wanted to come back to is that there's an exclusion from both the fixed place of business and the dependent agent PE tests for activity that is auxiliary or preparatory in character. And for that test to be met, the activity must either be carried on in contemplation of the non-resident's main business activity or in support of that activity. Now, in practice, this is likely to be a relatively low bar to, to meet, and it's really intended to capture very early stage business activity such as undertaking initial market research into particular jurisdictions. In the case of longer term homeworking arrangements where the functions of the employee are quite integral to the business, it's therefore highly unlikely that this exclusion would be met, but it's possible that in certain factual scenarios you could fall within this exemption. So worth considering on the fact.
2: Thank you, Hannah. I think that's probably all we've got time for today. I hope you've enjoyed our introduction to some of the issues to think about when considering whether an employee working remotely from abroad could create a taxable presence for their employer.
1: Thank you, Tom. And do check out our later episodes in our Travelling Seamlessly series for more detail on some of the issues discussed today, as well as other hot topics in the global mobility space.